But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here with us. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In the Academy Award winning screenplay for the film The Big Sick, there's a moment that popped into my head immediately when I thought this week of so-called Doubting Thomas. In a lot of ways, this moment is the turning point of the movie. A young Pakistani man named Kumail, who lives in America, has found himself drifting away from the Muslim faith of his parents. He's secretly dating a white American woman instead of one of the Pakistani Muslims with whom his mother is incessantly trying to set him up. And when he's supposed to be doing his ritual prayers, he goes into the garage and plays video games on his phone. Now, eventually, as always happens in movies like this, his deceptions get found out and his parents arrive at his apartment to confront him. Kumail confesses. I don't pray, he says. I haven't prayed for years. His father asks, you don't believe in Allah? And here's the important part, his response. I don't know what I believe, Dad. I don't know. I know Islam has been really good for you. It has made you good people. But I don't know what I believe. I just need to figure it out on my own. Now, Divorced from the context of the movie, that doesn't sound so bad, right? Certainly, it's important for a child to come to personal faith outside the, edict, the edicts and control of his parents. But that's not the overarching claim of this scene. If you see it in the context of the whole movie, a clear point is being made here. That being sure about something is ignorant. It's most likely wrong to insist that there's one way things ought to be. Banking on an absolute truth is silly. Being comfortable, on the other hand, with doubt and uncertainty, everyone finding their own truth, that's where true enlightenment is. And notably, this young man, having just been asked if he believes in God, does not set out on a spiritual journey to find out what the truth is. His shrug of the shoulders is an apparently satisfactory answer. Faith in Allah or any other God is never mentioned again. Now what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this kind of doubt, the Hollywood-approved, big, sick kind of doubt, is very different from the doubt displayed by Thomas. Now Thomas, as we read, wasn't there when Jesus appears to the disciples in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection. And when they announce to him that their Savior is alive, 
He doubts. In fact, he refuses to believe it. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, he says, and put my finger in that mark and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Aha, we might say, another doubter, just like Kumail in the big sick. I don't know what I believe. I have to figure it out for myself. But actually, they're not at all the same. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The difference between the cynical doubt of the world and the redeemable doubt of the Christian. I'm going to try to preach a sermon about doubt and still get back to the good news of Jesus Christ. Because it seems to me that as we consider the biblical doubt of Thomas that we find in this morning's reading from John 20, that there are actually two kinds of doubt. There's the Kumail from the big sick kind of doubt, and then there's the doubt of Thomas. Let's get right to the main difference. Kumail says, I'll figure it out on my own. Now He's putting himself in charge of things. When his father asks him if he believes in God, his answer implies that that sort of thing is, well, up to him. Kumail is the actor here, the subject of the sentence. I'll do this. I'll do that. This is a kind of doubt that puts him on the throne. This kind of doubt casts a skeptical eye at the amazing things of God. Now, I can't speak to the analogies from Islam so much, but for a doubter who might be inclined to a more Christian worldview, we might expect to hear things like, A man swallowed by a fish? Doubt it. A leper cleansed? Doubt it. A savior raised from the dead? Doubt it. Do you hear the way this doubt is expressed? You are the center of the system, the voice from on high. And if something doesn't seem or feel right to you, you doubt it. You, therefore, are ultimately in control of what is true or not. And that makes you your God. In 1966, a church was founded that considered itself, quote, more humanistically centered, with members referring to the organization as the world's first carnal religion. Basically, said a spokesman, we worship ourselves. We refer to ourselves as I-theists. We see ourselves as our own God. This is putting yourself on the throne. This is a doubt of anything that isn't sourced in you. This is the kind of doubt that says, I'm going to figure it out for myself. Anything that doesn't conform to your will or your desires can be doubted first and then ultimately thrown away. And that road only ever has one end, the doubt of anything and everything. What is the gospel? I wouldn't presume to know. Who is God? Who knows? Who can know? And then finally, well, there must be no God and no savior, but me. This is the logical end of a doubt that puts you on the throne. It is utterly hopeless with no savior but you, yourself. Oh, and that church that was founded in 
1966, the church that sees its members as their own gods. That's the church of Satan, literally. Those quotes were from last month's issue of Rolling Stone about the church of Satan's official reaction to a popular hip-hop video. But this is not how Thomas doubts. Thomas doesn't say, I'll figure it out on my own. Right? This Church of Satan, the big, sick, Hollywood-approved doubt has been turned by the world, and I think even some Christians, into a kind of virtue. As in, who could ever be so close-minded as to claim that they're right about something? That they know something for sure? That there is some absolute truth? How can we possibly know what God really said? Or what he really meant. This is not how Thomas doubts. Thomas knows exactly what God has said and done. He just, for a moment, can't believe that it's actually true. Thomas doesn't say, I'll figure it out on my own. Thomas says, show me. That is so different. Show me. Though Thomas's doubt is no virtue, Thomas does doubt in a way that puts him in submission to God with a holy fear and a hope against hope that these things might actually be true. First of all, note that he's still with the disciples a week later when they have gathered again. He hasn't thrown anything away. And then see that Thomas's doubt is of a kind that Jesus can actually enter into and answer. And then finally, Thomas's doubt is of a kind that can be redeemed. His response to Jesus shows who is and who has always been on the throne of Thomas's life, despite his doubt. My Lord, he says, and my God. Jesus is on the throne. Now, this is good news for doubters. This does not mean that any doubt at all is proof that you've joined the church of Satan and put yourself on the throne of your life. Doubt is a natural, fallen human state, a state of need. After all, it is to doubting Thomas that Jesus comes, offering his wounds, offering himself. A strong faith does not mean the complete absence of doubt, but let us not make Or think of doubt as a virtue. God has spoken. God has acted. And we sometimes, okay, often, need to be reminded that the amazing things of God are actually true. That's what Thomas's story is all about. A reminder that Jesus really did what he said he was going to do. In Mark chapter 9, we read the story of a little boy who is oppressed by a demon. Now, the demon makes the boy mute. He throws him into seizures, and he apparently even made a practice of throwing this poor child into water and fire, trying to destroy him. Jesus' disciples try and fail to cast out this demon. So the boy's father comes to Jesus begging and says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. 
and help us. And Jesus says to him, if, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And Mark writes, immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This is Thomas. And this is us. We have doubts, of course. Sometimes the promises of God made manifest in Christ Jesus seem too wonderful for us. Too good to be true. Our sin seems too great to be overcome. We cry out in something like doubt. If you can do anything, have compassion and help me. Thomas said much the same thing. I need to see the marks. Put my hand in his side. Only then can I believe. If you can do anything, have compassion and help me. And then the good news. Jesus says to that boy's father, if, if I can do anything, just you wait and see. To Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And to us, to you, be reminded in the preaching of the word and in the administration of communion that it's all true. I rose from the dead to redeem sinners like you. In other words, Jesus would have comforting words to say to Kumail from the big sick. Stop, he would say. You don't have to figure it out for yourself. Here I am. Of course, sinful humanity hears you don't have to figure it out for yourself and warps it into you don't get to figure it out for yourself. We turn good news into bad news because we want to be gods. We want to be on the thrones of our lives. We want to, like Kumail, figure it out for ourselves. We've been struggling with that particular confusion since the serpent whispered in the garden. Did God really say? Yes, he did. God really said. He said that he is on the throne and that any other arrangement will lead only to death. You might say that since we ate of that fruit, the church of Satan is our natural membership. We are naturally inclined to put ourselves on the thrones of our lives. But Good Friday and Easter Sunday and then Christ's subsequent appearing and offering his wounds to Thomas revokes that membership forever and installs Jesus. Jesus and only Jesus on our thrones. We may doubt. Of course we do. We are broken people. But we believe that God has spoken. That with a word, he created this world. And with another word, capital W, his son, he has redeemed it. And now that word, Jesus Christ the righteous, is seated on the throne at the right hand of the Almighty. 
He is the rock upon which the surging sea of our doubt crashes. But he is unmoved. He is immovable. We doubt. He is faithful. Thomas doubted. Jesus came offering his wounds. We believe he helps our unbelief. If you're hearing my words right now, I know that the Lord is at work in you. Maybe for the very first time, but he is at work. He is claiming his throne. Maybe he's reclaiming it as we ask him to do each week. Take us off our thrones, dear Lord, and reclaim your rightful seat. St. Paul says that no one has any excuse that the entire creation shouts the existence of Almighty God. Now we may, like the Romans did, suppress that truth, preferring a lie, the lie that we can and should figure things out for ourselves. But God is faithful. God is at work. You may be a doubter this morning, a doubter in need of faith, But aren't you hoping against hope that these amazing things are true for you? I have good news. On account of Jesus Christ, they are true for you right now. It is into this kind of doubt that Jesus comes, extending his wounded hands and his side, the marks, the proof of what he did. For you, it is into this kind of doubt that he speaks belief. The faith that you have now, whether it's the first stirrings or a raging flame of faith, is not something that you created from your throne. It is the gift of the Almighty King, yours in Jesus Christ. Jesus' word to Thomas isn't so much a commandment as it is a promise, indeed, a gift. Do not doubt, but believe. And here are my hands. Here is my side. Jesus gives Thomas the faith that he lacks. And so we gather week by week to regard again and again Jesus' nail-marked hands and his spear-scarred side offered to us. As a reminder of what he has accomplished for us, that's what we do here. We believe he helps our unbelief. So believe with me again. God is almighty. He created us in his image to worship and honor him. He decreed an order for this world, a good and proper form under which we should live. We sinned, attempting to grasp for ourselves his rightful place on the throne, desiring to decide for ourselves what was right and wrong. This resulted in a profound enmity with God, a separation. But God wasn't done with us. To redeem you from your rebellion, he sent his son, fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ, to live as one of us, 
to live the righteous life you failed to live, to bear the wrath that your sins deserved, to die in your place, and finally to be raised again to reconcile you to himself. In Christ and in Christ alone, this has been accomplished. For you, it is finished. Believe it. God will help your unbelief. Amen.